0: Black holes have become this kind of frontier.
1: It's always been this object that starts to infringe on what you can ask as a physicist.
2: Science Social, a podcast series about how science, history, and society connect with and add to the big questions that we will have today. This show is created by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name's Stephanie Hood, and in each episode, I'm joined by guests from our institute to talk about their research, their big questions, and some of the weird and wonderful experiences they've had along the way. Very pleased today to welcome Juan Andres Leon, a historian of science and visiting scholar in Department One at our institute, Structural Changes in Systems of Knowledge, and Visiting Scholar in our Research Programme, History of the Max Planck Society. And Alexander Bloom, historian of science and Max Planck research group leader in our research group Historical Epistemology of the Final Theory Program. Hello. Welcome Juan Andres, welcome Alex. Um, So we're here today with our masks on and with the windows open uh, because of the pandemic. So I hope that doesn't affect the sound too much. If you hear hear any birds singing, then that's why. We're here today to talk about black holes. Um, Big topic. Um, So I'm looking at the moment at the first image of a black hole, which was shot by the Event Horizon Telescope in... 2019. So this is the supermassive black hole in the center of galaxy M87. You might remember it. I mean, just to give you a description of what I'm looking at right now is it's kind of this looks like an orange and yellow blob with a black background. So how was this for you as historians of physics to hear about this image being produced and seeing the picture for yourself for the first time?
1: For me, it was a, a moment of a bit of closure and relief because we had been following this adventure a bit. The, you know, the Event Horizon Telescope is not one instrument, but it's like a, a dozen telescopes uh, around the world that are combined to produce this picture. And we, we had followed when, when the, the measurements had been taken in 2017, and then there was this long, long silence. Uh, and it took like a year longer than people were expecting. And, but it was the question, well, <laughs> is this going to be good enough? as a picture that comes out of it, that actually it has uh, become uh, more iconic than other discoveries that were done in the, say, in the past five years, there has been a lot of research, of results of research about black holes. And in the end, this is what people will remember the most. So it's a, it's a good moment of closure.
0: Yeah. I mean, the picture is really cool too, right? I mean, it, c- it came out really nicely. And I mean, we had, uh, um, we invited Heino Falke, one of the uh, yeah, ma- main scientists on the EHT, And I asked him about how they chose the color scheme, right? Because, I mean, it's not really a color photograph, right? It's not like we can actually see colors there. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that was me who chose the color scheme to make it look like a heat map. And he was really proud of that. And I think uh, rightly so, because, I mean, that really does, that's an important element in making it so iconic.
2: That's an interesting, nugget of information, actually. Um, I was going to ask you specifically, I mean, you obviously know a lot about black holes and also about the story behind this. How does... How does this image or the production of this image actually connect to your research as historians?
0: We have, of course, you know, images of black holes that are around before, like drawings of people, um, somehow based on on theoretical ideas, trying to map out the physics of black holes.
1: Yeah, I I think from from my point of view, black holes are an example of an entity that goes from a theoretical hypothesis to something that can be slowly ascertained indirectly by its effects on other entities that you can see. So it, it becomes more and more something that should exist, but for a long time, you cannot see the thing directly. You you just have more and more clues.
0: Yeah, and in a way, I mean, you know, like black holes are the ultimate object that defy you know taking images of them because they swallow all light, reflect nothing. So the image is not just you know taking an image of something that's very rare, but it's taking an image of something that is really fundamentally impossible to photograph in a way. So it's interesting to see how like this kind of image changes the way people think about black holes, kind of the intuition. So the the contrast there, I think, is very interesting for for an historian looking forward.
2: Yeah. This is something that was really fascinating to me, I think. I mean, only having a very back, basic background in physics. I mean, I'm also more of a visual person, I think. Being able to see the image was something that, to me, was really inspiring and got me really interested in looking, like learning more about this topic full start, Um, so before we talk a bit more about black holes, there's one theory that was essential, essential to discovering them, which was this theory of general relativity, as I understand it. So general relativity is this theory of gravitation that was published by Albert Einstein in 1915 and is uh, also the current description of gravitation in modern physics. So general relativity sort of refines Newton's law of, of universal gravitation to, to try and provide a unified description of gravity as a property of space and time. And then also under Einstein's theory of general relativity, gravity can actually bend time. Um, and so something that I found really fascinating was that clocks on the International Space Station also go very, very slightly slower than they do on Earth. And that actually has to be compensated for on the International Space Station so that they're using the same time as on Earth. Is that right? am not making that up. Okay, good. Um, just to kind of summarize general relativity, I'm going to use this quote by the, the theoretical physics John Wheeler, that space-time tells matter how to move. Matter tells space-time how to curve. Is that, is that right? Do I have this right? Or is there anything else that you, you need to add?
0: Well, there's a lot to add, of yeah.
2: course.
0: <laughs> 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 but, but yeah, no, there was, I, I didn't see anything Seems a fine introduction to me.
2: Okay. Um, And what this... I mean, this has important astrophysical uh, implications. And this is then when we come to black holes, right? So what this does is it implies the existence of black holes, that there are regions of outer space in which space and time are distorted in in such a way that nothing, not even light, can escape. So today, general relativity is one of the cornerstones of modern physics. Uh, But when Einstein published this in 1915, the reactions were quite different. Can you tell me a bit more about the first reactions to Einstein's general relativity?
0: Well, I think within the specialized physics community, it was pretty well received, but it also didn't like make this big splash right away outside the community. That all changed a few years later when one of the major predictions of the theory, right, the bending of light from distant stars in the gravitational field of the sun was was confirmed. That was a a big media hype at the time, right? This is right after World War I, and people are um, very eager for good news, especially good news, you know, about scientists peacefully collaborating, you know, a, a German making a prediction and an, an, an Englishman confirming it. And um, this then really elevates Einstein to international superstardom. So that's like in 1919, that's a few years after, after he proposes the theory for the, for the first time. That of course, then also brings some resistance, right? I mean, there's a lot of pushback from, you know, proto-Nazi physicists who are like, you know, this is, this is not real science, you know, this is crazy stuff. And, uh, but still i mean by 1919 or in, in 1919 right it's pretty much much established as you know a, a stroke of genius and probably true theory but it's just not quite clear what to do with it right it's just like okay this is this is cool now we kind of understand gravity better it kind of goes hand in hand with a new picture of what space and time are but there's just a handful of people who can actually do some research with it it's not quite clear what kind of uh, significant implications it has but so it kind of enters a lull and, and people are more interested in what's going on at the time and kind of microscopic physics, because this is also the time than in the 1920s, when, when quantum mechanics is discovered, and that's kind of where all of the action is. So it's kind of just, a, I mean, the main reason why people don't pay that much attention to it, maybe then, especially um, within, within science, is not because they don't believe in it or think it's silly, but just there's not enough to do with it in a way, right?
1: Mm. There was a weak connection between the theory that is formulated and what kind of observations and experiments you can do with it and how, how to establish say, a continuous interaction and feedback between theory and observation is not easily possible with general relativity in the first part of the century.
0: It's like this very major philosophical theory about you know how space and time are different than we ever imagined them. But what it ultimately produces is just like, you know, small numerical corrections that you can actually calculate from it originally, right? Say the, the clock's running differently on the ISS that you mentioned. It's a minute effect that you have to take into account, but still it's a minute effect because there's no like, there's there's no thing like a black hole, right? We're like, okay, this is something we could never have imagined. It's out there. We can only understand it through general relativity, like qualitatively. There's no such thing like that.
2: Yeah. This was something actually, I mean, talking of the philosophical implications, in your research group itself, you're you're trying to bring historians and physicists and philosophers together. And can you sort of say something about, about the kind of wider philosophical implications that this theory of general relativity might have had for Einstein himself, and then also more generally?
0: It really, like I said, it gives us a new idea of what space and time is, right? If you look at the uh, paradigmatic thing is like uh, what uh, is, is Kant in the 18th century. And it's basically the idea, okay, space and time, they're nothing we can really critically evaluate. They're just kind of there. They're Before we even think anything, we already have to have space and time. And then suddenly with Einstein, space and time become like these malleable things where you know the presence of the sun or the earth or some other big object is actually gonna distort them. That's really a major shift. It turns space and time from foundations to an actual thing that scientists can investigate and study.
2: Talking of black holes, actually, and maybe extending a little bit from this, I mean, from this kind of big shift that happened, it sort of seemed like the theory disappeared a bit and then came back in the 50s. Is that right?
0: Like I said, right? there just didn't seem to be too much to do with general relativity in the meantime. And then this is something that happens in the late 1920s, and this was maybe the first major thing to happen that the expansion of the universe is discovered. And that's something that you can only understand in the framework of general relativity. So as far as you know, what we call cosmology, so the evolution of the universe is concerned, there certainly was something going on at that time. But still, a lot of that was mainly speculative, again, too I mean. One knew that the universe expanded, but that was kind of all that one knew. And then we could think about, you know... Has it been expanding forever and will keep on expanding or was there a Big Bang or something? But it was only the 1950s that we really see people coming together. So people who were working on these kind of speculative unified field theories, people working on cosmology, also mathematicians who were very interested in general relativity, postdocs doing their PhD here and then going to a different center and like kind of a, a real cohesion. They start having conferences, they start having journals devoted specifically to general relativity, and all of that kind of picks up mm. in, the, in, in the 1950s.
1: Yeah, uh, well, something also very interesting on the sociopolitical side is that up to 1929 was a moment of economic expansion and and the the Roaring Twenties. The large telescopes of the previous generation were really showing their big results. These first indications of the expansion of the universe had been riding on that. And then comes the the Great Depression, and uh, one of the obvious victims of this was astronomy. And then basically, there's almost a generation from, say, 1930 to until after the war, where there's like a whole institutional and uh, disciplinary crisis that only picks up after the war.
0: Money starts pouring in again after the war, right? And more money than ever starts pouring into physics because I mean, the physicists had just won the war, right? They built the bomb, they built radar. And this small general relativity community kind of piggybacks on that. Suddenly like you have not just the government, but even like the military funding basic research.
2: Okay, cool. So this actually connects to what I wanted to, possibly connects to what I wanted to discuss next, which is going a little bit more into black holes and how this became also a thing in the history of physics. Um, Really starting from the beginning, when was there the first indication of black holes existing?
0: You can write down something that looks like a black hole in general relativity rather easily, right? Um, and this was done essentially right after Einstein proposed his theory in 1915. And the first solution was then given by, by um, Karl Schwarzschild in, in 1916. Um, as a theoretical idealization, right, you can just take it to be a point, right? Like you said, like the black hole is a point. But if it were literally a point, then the gravitational field closer to it would indeed be so strong that no light comes out. But people took this to be an idealization and we're never going to have any object that's so compact that you could like, you know, put all of its mass in a point. So even though the formula for a black hole was there, this was not something that was considered to be physical in any way. People really start thinking about black holes really only once they start understanding how the sun works. People start working out um, that these are, you know, nuclear fusion processes which keep the sun burning. And as soon as that's understood, it's also clear that stars like our sun and other stars can use up their fuel at some point. And as soon as its fuel is burnt out, it's going to collapse from its own gravitational pull. It's going to collapse in, into itself. The question is, how far is it going to collapse? Like, you know, what is it going to collapse to? These, these are questions that people start debating in the 1930s. And they come up with some stable configurations that it can collapse to. These are white dwarfs. That's what's going to happen to our sun. For bigger suns, they would be so heavy that they could turn into what are called neutron stars, which is basically a huge atomic nucleus. But it was slowly becoming clear that for even bigger stars, right, the question was whether you could have stars that were so heavy that they would basically collapse all the way into a point and actually become the kind of black hole that one had thought was just an idealization but wheeler whom we mentioned earlier right he, he did not believe that at first right he was like there has to be something else you know either some other stable configuration like which is even denser than an atomic nucleus than a neutron star would be or the whole thing is just going to blow up but over the course of time wheeler got convinced both by theoretical calculations in general relativity and especially also through computer simulations so people had been working on computer simulations of these kinds of implosions because they were interested in, in bombs, right? And so by the early 1960s, even Wheeler who was one of the main skeptics is convinced that if you have these big heavy stars and they've burnt out their fuel, they are gonna collapse into something like a black hole.
1: It's a very interesting coincidence that simultaneously as you have this, this renaissance from the theoretical side, This is exactly the right moment when the major observations of the post-war era really kick in. Radio astronomy had been born basically during the war, when the first generation of post-war radio telescopes were German radars repurposed by the countries, the occupied countries for this purpose. They start to discover a vastly different universe that was always there but was not accessible with the traditional optical telescopes, a much more violent universe, more dynamic. And then exactly in 1962, there is this incredible observational development, what were called quasars. And it's these observations from radio astronomy that originally didn't easily match to what was already known from the optical view of the universe. And uh, it turns out that it's because the objects that are so far away that also the the amounts of energy and violence of the processes that lead to these emissions is just something that is a a different kind of thing. And this also makes it thinkable more and more that general relativity is necessary to explain what is going on. And uh, through radio astronomy, you also start to see very good evidence of the Big Bang having actually occurred. So I, I think through the 1960s, there are very extreme phenomena and entities that suddenly become observable, that were very speculative before. So in a way, black holes are not alone in this. It's easier to think about something like a black hole because you start to also see, well, maybe you can see the origins of the universe. Or for example, as Alex mentioned earlier, neutron stars. So suddenly all these hypotheses become observable.
0: So, I mean, you you can see we've got this nice uh, division with Juan Andrés talking about the observation while I'm um, talking more about the, the theoretical aspect. And I think maybe there's one more thing for me to mention on that theory side as we go into the 60s and 70s. It's not really essential for a black hole to collapse all the way to a point. Essentially, What you need to have to get a black hole is for your star to collapse far enough so that it's a dense enough object for the gravitational pull to be strong enough that it doesn't even let out light anymore. And a collapsing star is gonna do that already before it's shrunken all the way to a point, right? Basically, at some point, it's just so heavy that it forms around itself what's called a horizon, but the question was then, and it's kind of a theoretical question, because it's a question about what happens within the black hole, right, which we can't see anyway, was whether it would actually contract all the way to become a single point. And by point, like point is not like, you know, it doesn't just mean like a, a speck of dust. It really means a point in the, in the geometrical sense. So it has no extension. It's just like one idealized point, right? It has no height, no width, no breadth, but right? It's just a point point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and if you take like the entire mass of the sun or something even bigger and contract it to a single point, right, the gravitational field is not just going to be strong enough to keep in the light, it's going to be infinite, right? And basically then, you know, all, all hell breaks loose and your equations collapse and everything. So it was like a big deal th- theoretically. And yeah, so that's where Penrose comes in. This is uh, 60, 65. And he sets up the so-called singularity theorem, which says, you know, no matter what, if we have something that collapses to a black hole, it's going to collapse all the way to a point, to what physicists call a singularity, which basically means you know, everything we know breaks down at this one point in space. And that's kind of the moment when people realize you know, black holes are not just these extreme astronomical objects, but they're really a point where also our theoretical understanding is going to break down, right? Where we need some new physical concepts to understand what's happening within the black hole. And that's kind of when black holes become one of the essential objects at the frontiers of fundamental physics.
2: This is fascinating. I'm learning so much. I actually even I don't know if we have like one one other like last thing I want to go to before we talk to about the very small matter of the center of our galaxy was um and how did this research then proceed then into the 70s and 80s from from there?
0: There we really have like this disconnect between the theoretical investigation and the observation. You really see kind of this divide between black holes as a, an extreme physical object where you can test your foundational theories your you know, your, your th- theories of everything. But all of this has like nothing to do anymore with finding the black hole observationally.
1: It, it's still the case today, as we have mentioned earlier, that you can sort of compartmentalize out You can be very positivistic as a scientist and say, well, whatever goes on in there, I can't know, so I won't get into. And a lot of the observational programs to to find and see and say, asserting how black holes behave astrophysically, can afford not to look too much into it.
2: Going to one very specific black hole, can you tell me how this idea came about that there could be a black hole in the centre of our galaxy?
1: Say the black holes that led a lot of the theoretical conceptualization about it were the ones Alex talked about earlier, those end products of the life of stars. By the 1960s, this is, say, firmly established. At the same time, stellar black holes are already becoming established as an observable entity, indirectly observable, because there's this other form of astronomy that becomes possible, X-ray astronomy. And then by by the early 1970s, they are discovering sources of X-rays that necessarily come from a black hole. At the same time, this happens at relatively low masses. I mean, we're talking about uh, less than 10 times the mass of the sun already produces a, a sort of black hole. The center of the galaxy, however, is a very cannot be the the end product of stellar evolution as, as we know it because if we're talking about masses in the millions and, and billions of the mass of our sun so the universe that we see out there has much more extreme scenarios like we have entities that are millions billions of times heavier out there so quasars in 1962 already uh, there it's a good candidate place to have a black hole at the center because these are like galaxies from a long time ago, very large, where a lot of matter is being swallowed up to the centre, producing all these massive amounts of radiation. So this was
2: all then sort of leading up to the discovery of Sagittarius A, this black hole.
1: Even if if it's necessary to ask whether what you have there is a black hole, well, it's interesting to ask, is there something at the centre? And uh, when radio astronomy starts to develop, One of the important sources that is discovered very early is the center of the galaxy. So you know there is something interesting going on there. The problem is that radio astronomy doesn't have a great resolution. So you can sort of know from which direction things come from, but it's not like you can really pinpoint sources very accurately. And... uh, It's in the early 1970s when you start to have interferometry. So what you do is you you combine telescopes that are at a distance from each other. And then in some ways, they act as though you had a a telescope of the size spanning the distance between the two telescopes. And uh, people start to be able to use interferometry to pinpoint an actual point source in the region of the center of the galaxy that seems to have very interesting emissions, and this is what they they name this Sagittarius A star.
0: Yeah,
2: can I ask you a question? Actually, I mean, on the topic of proving this, and just also connecting to. Um, to something also that you both, you wrote in this feature story um, for us last year about Reinhard Gensel. So he's one of the directors of the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics. And his work had something to do with this, didn't
1: it? So this is basically the Nobel Prize, very well deserved, it kind of spans this last generation, where you go from, from more indirect to more direct ways of absorbing things. So One of the main problems with the center of the galaxy in particular is that it's a very dusty environment and light doesn't really reach us from there. But this other form of astronomy called infrared astronomy, it's the same wavelength that is used in night vision, crosses more easily through this kind of dusty, opaque environment. And uh, it's making huge progress. There's a lot of these technologies that will have an impact in how accurately you can look at at the center of the galaxy. And people of the generation of Reinhard Genzel recognize that this may make possible to find out what's going on there. And you need to observe over several years what kind of orbits the object's trace. And over the course of many years, you can ascertain that the visible stars are orbiting a very heavy object that is in one specific point. And everything hints at more and more that it has to be what we think of as a black hole. And then you can start to propose observational experiments to see if the behavior in the vicinity of this entity starts to be in agreement with the more extreme implications of general relativity. So... uh, it's no longer just tracing orbits and all that, but for instance, doing spectrometry, like see how how the color of light shifts in the vicinity of this entity. And uh, the first good orbits of this region were already traced, say, around the year 2000. And over the next 10, 15, 20 years, people are starting to go even further and apply all possible astronomical methods to see how this thing behaves there. But totally in parallel, there's also the development of gravitational wave detectors. And then you have this picture of the black hole coming out of interferometric observations in another wavelength, which is what we talked about earlier. These parallel research programs also end up supporting each other from what people in entirely different types of doing astronomy and astrophysics are also finding. And in the end, I think the Nobel Prizes of the past half decade that have gone to, to things that involve black holes also uh, reinforced each other. It would have been much more difficult if it was only one strand of research leading into this.
2: Yeah, This is fascinating. It also makes me feel like we're living history in the making somehow with all of this. I, I imagine how people will be talking about now in 50 years in the history of physics and the history of black holes. And where we're going. I actually just want to finish off. Honestly, you're both really good storytellers and I could probably listen to a lot more of this. Um, Just wanted to finish off by asking a little bit about both of the projects that you're involved in. What in your eyes for both of you were the findings that you had that most surprised or fascinated you?
0: For me, maybe, and I think this is also an important element of my thinking about the history of science in general, is how a historical investigation can lead to taking apart a concept like a black hole and looking at the independent components that go into it right because like i said if you look at it from the perspective of a contemporary physicist looking at this paper in 1916 when schwarzschild writes down something that looks like a black hole you're like oh it's all there right they 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 should have known everything but if you look at the history you can see how all of these individual components come together and get agglomerated into this this notion of a black hole right you have the idea that they're the end product of the collapse of a star which is not at all present there you have the idea that the point is really an actual point and not just an I- idealization all of these things i mentioned are all gathered together in like one big idea of a black hole that physicists work with today. But if you look at it historically, you can see how many different ideas which are to some extent independent, such a conscious black hole is made of. And well, I find that just, you know, fascinating from an intellectual
1: perspective.
2: I feel like we can go in so many different directions. <laughs> I really want to learn more. Um
1: Juan Andres. Yeah, I'll I'll go in a in an entirely different direction to talk about <laughs> this because I I entirely agree with with Alex, but in the kind of research that I do, what is most fascinating about black holes is that how they, how the scale of research has shifted through the twentieth century, because you start with an individually crafted theoretical entity at the beginning of the century, whose existence in the world is almost unprovable. And through the decades, and especially after World War II, you have all this change in the way scientific research is done that create the conditions of possibility for observing such entities out there. And uh, how many of the scientists that worked on, on the theory of black holes were uh, tied to the weapons programs of the war and the post-war era the way that it's no longer the the work of individuals, but of entire communities of uh, hundreds, thousands of researchers that can lead to a scientific answer. And then on top of it, we get these incredible proofs of what are otherwise very esoteric, say, concepts.
2: That seems to me like a really good place to finish so um thank you very much Juan Andres thank you very much Alex this has been really fascinating learning about black holes um and I really I really want to learn more I have so many more questions this is it for today if you like what you just heard we love your support click the subscribe button recommend this to your friends and colleagues or give us a thumbs up in your favorite podcast app you can find us on iTunes Spotify and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts Science Social is produced by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Music by Poddington Bear, Then I'm the host, Stephanie Hood. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at at MPIWG. And most of all, thanks for listening.